All right, if you would, let's go ahead and take a seat and open your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52. Jeremiah, chapter 52, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read a couple verses here out of Jeremiah as a way to prepare us for his word here. Jeremiah 52, starting in verse 1, if you follow along in your Bible, it would be helpful. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, just look up the page number for Jeremiah in the table of contents, and you can easily find where we're going to be at, the very end of the book, chapter 52. Verse 1, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hemutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. At this point, we'll go through this, but at this point, Jeremiah recaps the captivity of Israel. Let's skip to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Muradak, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his garments, prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. Father, as we come into this final chapter of Jeremiah, we do ask, God, that you might open our eyes to the truth that you are communicating to us through your word. Speak to us. I pray that in this gathered presence that we would truly experience the very presence of Jesus Christ. It's in his name, for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. You know, we always say this at Sunday night prayer, prayer services, but we seem to forget it on Sunday morning. When we pray to God, we say amen. Say amen. amen. That means you were listening. It means you're with me, all right? Amen. amen. Speaking of which, we have a Sunday night prayer service tonight. Good time for a little commercial, evening prayer. Um, at 1411 Utah, hope you can be there for that. Six o'clock. 501 years ago, in a couple days, uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. Now, that sounds like nothing to some of you. You have no clue what I'm talking about. And that's fine if you don't. But what that meant historically was that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being covered in a movement that was going to cover the entire globe. It was a pivotal moment. The, the, the church had hit rock bottom. And 501 years ago, this past Wednesday, something changed. Also this past Wednesday, Montrell and Jody had their baby. <laughs> Little side note there. We can give them a round of applause. They're trying to figure out parenting right now so they're not here. But uh, you'll see baby Nyla pretty soon. Um, Jess and I were 
contemplating the, the possibility of Nyla and Chapman, you know, being uh, a couple someday. <laughs> that might work out well. And one thing Jess said was, she said, that would be good because I want my kids' spouses to have good theology. <laughs> and, uh, and this would be, a, and I said, I said, well, she was born on Reformation Day. <laughs> so chances are, she's going to have pretty good theology. Um, so it's looking good. The problem is Montreal's uh, dowry prices are way too high. So <laughs> out of our league, um, but it is what it is. How did I get there? The Reformation. Reformation Day, that's how. That's how. The Catholic Church had hit rock bottom. By the way, we call it the Catholic Church. It was, it was just the church at the time. Had hit rock bottom. The gospel was lost. There was corruption all over the place. And something changed. Something changed. And what we discovered was that rock bottom wasn't the end. That's the theme I want to preach on this morning. Rock bottom ain't the end. And if you don't like my English there, you'd rather me say rock bottom is not the end. (laughs) Then you can call it that. Rock bottom is not the end. But it's easier to say rock bottom ain't the end. Rock bottom, say it with me now, ain't the end. Amen. I wonder if anybody in here feels as if you have hit rock bottom. Maybe those around you don't know it. Maybe you're afraid those around you are going to discover that you have hit rock bottom. I wonder if anybody here knows what it's like to hit rock bottom. Listen, rock bottom is not a good place to be. Rock bottom does not feel nice. Rock bottom doesn't look the same for everybody. You might be going through rock bottom and everybody thinks you've got it together. Rock bottom isn't just a problem in one aspect of your life. It's when all of your problems come together and you feel absolutely hopeless. That there is no way out of this. You have come to the end of your rope. What causes us to hit rock bottom? Well, it could be the sin of someone else. It could be what others have done against us. And that causes us to hit rock bottom. Often, maybe more often than not, rock bottom is caused by our own sin. A combination of things that sort of catch up with us. Sins that we ignore, sins that we think we can get away with. And it catches up. Either way, you slice the rock bottom cake. Rock bottom is caused by the, by the reality of sin and brokenness in this world. What we don't need are what the motivational speakers give us. And a lot of pa- preachers parade as motivational speakers, by the way. I heard one preacher say, when you're in rock bottom, just make sure you take a ladder with you. How does that help me? If I had a ladder with me, I wouldn't be in rock bottom. Right? right? Like rock bottom is when you took a ladder and you climbed three quarters of the way up and it broke. And now your back is broke laying on the ground. That's rock bottom. I heard another preacher say, If you hit rock bottom, it's okay as long as you have enough bounce in you to bounce back up. Again, I'm not in rock bottom at that moment. You see what I'm saying? Like rock bottom is when you fell and you didn't have any bounce. And you're lying on the ground. And you feel hopeless. This is why I was mentioning Reformation Day. I forgot. (laughs) It's all coming back. It's all coming back. That could be a song. It's all coming back. Martin Luther, one of, one of, uh, Martin Luther, 95 Theses, one of, one of my favorite quotes from Luther is this. He says, the life of Christianity consists of personal pronouns. 
Now, some of you are like, I have no clue what that means. Well, a personal pronoun would be what? Some English scholars, give me an example. Mine. Yeah, mine, I, me. Meaning, uh, it's one thing to say Christ died as the Savior. It's another thing to say Christ died as my Savior. You see what I'm saying? The gospel consists of personal pronouns. It's one thing to say Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Even the devil can say that. It's another thing to say Jesus Christ is my hope. You see what I'm saying? When we are in the pit of rock bottom, and for some reason my mic keeps coming off. Let me fix it. Anybody got a piece of tape or something? I'm not joking. What's up? When we are in the bottom of rock bottom, what we need is not a motivational speaker, but what we need in that moment is a Savior. Well, we've been tracking through Jeremiah, and today we come to our final sermon in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah has been a, a book of judgment against Israel, and then judgment against the nations. And as we close this book, what I want you to remember and see once again is that Jeremiah is not just about judgment, but it's about a Savior. Jeremiah is about hope for those who are in rock bottom. The main point that I want to try to draw out of this final chapter is simply this. Rock bottom ain't the end. God's sovereign grace brings restoration. Rock bottom ain't the end. God's sovereign grace brings restoration. Well, let's get into the chapter here. We see two primary things going on. First one is this. God's people find themselves in a mess. Everybody say, I found myself in a mess. We sometimes find ourselves in a mess. And as Jeremiah closes, we are reminded that God's people have found themselves in a mess. There was a zoologist that talked about how they catch monkeys. I read this. I don't know if it's true. You can't believe everything you read, but it's interesting. And uh, uh, they, were, they were talking about how they, catch, how they catch monkeys. What they said was they use what they call a monkey jar. They, they take a jar and they put peanuts down in the bottom of the jar. The mouth of the jar is just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in too. But then what happens is when the monkey grabs the peanuts, he can't pull his hand out of the jar without letting go of the peanuts. Now, the monkey is not willing to let go of the peanut. And so as a result, the monkey stands there with his hand caught in this jar. Well, little does he know that this is a trap. And they come and they catch the monkey. Listen, this is the way sin works in our own lives. We get our hands around some sin, and we, you sit in church and you hear of the warning. You know the warning. You've read it. You've heard it. You, you have friends Loved ones come up and they say, let go of this sin, but I'm not willing to let go of the sin. Little do we know that it's a trap. Because we will not let go of the sin, sin has ensnared us. And destruction is coming our way. This is what has happened in the book of Jeremiah. The people did not want to let go of their idols. They would not let go of their sins. And as a result, the destruction of the sin trap had come upon them and they had received the judgment of God. 
We see a recap here in this text. First, we see that they had rebelled. We're reminded of that young king, Zedekiah. He was only 32 years old when he died. I didn't realize he was so young until I got to the last chapter. He was 32 years old. In verse 2, it says that he did evil in the sight of God. In verse 3, as a result of his doing evil and really representing and leading the evil, wicked, rebellious people, God's wrath came upon the people. Secondly, as a result of their rebellion, they had been exiled from that land. Verse 3, for that reason, it says God cast them out. This is an eviction note from the landlord. The covenant had been broken and they are cast out of the land. How do they do that? Or how does that happen? How does God do this? Well, He uses Babylon. The empire of Babylon who has this wicked desire to take control of the land all around them. Babylon, with the king Nebuchadnezzar, has come in and has destroyed Jerusalem. They have hit rock bottom. The next verses, uh, verses 4 through 6, give us a recap of this. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He first starves the city. There's no food. They cut it all off. The people are, are suffering from starvation. Finally, there's a breach in the city wall, and the city officials and others in the next couple verses, verse 4 through 6 and 7 through 10, they, they, they run out of the city, they flee Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember this, we've already gone over this. If you remember what happens, Nebuchadnezzar catches up with them, takes them to Riblah, and there young Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, it comes face to face with King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then slaughters his boys right in front of his face and then takes out his eyes. So that the last thing that, Nebuchadnezzar, or that Zedekiah saw was Nebuchadnezzar killing his boys. He's then taken off and he lives the rest of his days as a, as a prisoner in Babylon. He goes on as in, this, in this recap for us in verses 12 through 19. He explains that Jerusalem had been burned. The writers explain probably to the exiles who are reading this letter that the temple had been destroyed and also pillaged. In verses 12 through 19, we see what they had taken. The bronze pillars, these beautiful massive bronze pillars of the temple were broken down, shattered, and, and in pieces they took the bronze back to Babylon. Along with that, they took all of the elements, all the tools that were used for the worship of God in the temple, which included pots, shovels, snuffers, basins, dishes, small bowls, fire pans, pots, lampstands, gold, and silver. All of that was taken out of the temple, the destroyed temple, out of the burnt city of Jerusalem and to Babylon. The scene is rock bottom. This is rock bottom for Israel. Imagine that you are some of the remnant in Babylon living there as slaves, living there in prison shackles. You are some of those who surrendered to Babylon and you find yourself here hearing this word which ends with the final destruction of the temple. Now you've got to remember, because some of you don't understand this, you've got to remember that the temple was like everything to them. That represented the very presence of God in their midst. If you remember earlier in the book, they took hope in the temple. They believed that Babylon would not touch them, that there would be no destruction coming to them. Why? Because we have the temple. Well, in this final judgment and destruction of Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed. This is rock bottom. This news would be worse than a royal assassination. This news would be worse than a, a, a money guy who hears that Wall Street had become broke. This 
this news would be worse than the news of the assassination of MLK. The news of 9-11. This would be worse for them than the Great Depression was in America. This news would be worse than Ravens fans hearing that the M&T Bank Stadium had been burned down. Right? This news would be worse than Brian waking up in the morning and realizing that Dawn had cut off all of his locks. This news would be worse than Tim Carey realizing that somebody stole his shoe collection. This news would be worse than Stephanie realizing that all the froofy coffee shops in the city were shut down. <laughs> Listen, this is rock bottom. This would, be, this would be the worst thing that you can imagine. There is no hope left in Zion. Listen, sin takes you to the bottom. Sin takes you to the bottom. Because of your sin, you're broke. Did you know sin costs a lot of money? Like, you don't see people, now you're going to give me some examples, well, yeah, but what about... Generally speaking, people who have given themselves over to sin are people who are having financial problems. Now, I'm not being like prosperity gospel here and like if you stop sinning, you're going to get... That's not what I'm... I'm just talking about practically speaking, it's hard to make money when you're up late sinning the night before. Sin leads to debt. It leads to owing people. It leads to financial destruction in your life. Sin leads to affairs. It leads to divorce. It leads to lovelessness. It leads to apathy. Sin leaves us with, with people all around who can't stand us. Sin leaves you with exes across the city, maybe across the country, who hate you. Like people that you hope you never see again in your life. And it's not their problem, it's yours. It's because of your sin. Sin leads us to a loss of a job. Often our kids deal with the brunt of the destruction that sin brings into our life. Anger, violence. And kids, don't think that you are immune to the destruction that sin brings into your life. Sin destroys children. There are children in this city who are shooting each other. I'm, I'm reading the news, I'm seeing 14-year-olds, I'm seeing 10-year-olds, 13-year-olds. Kids, sin takes you to rock bottom. We can't play with sin. You're never too young. You're never, let me turn around, you're never young enough to just play with sin. I'll deal with this when I get older. Listen, the problems that I have, the problems that a lot of these adults have in the room, are problems that we have because we started sinning when we were young. <laughs> Can anybody testify to that? Man, if, if we could just do our childhood over. Our teen years over. That's a sermon right there. Should I just keep going? <laughs> I got stuff I got to say here. We'll get back to that. That'll be another time. Sin destroys us. It leads our culture to injustice. You know, the history of civilization is a history of sin. One injustice after another. One kind of oppression after another kind of oppression. One corrupt government after another corrupt government. And for some of us, and maybe I'll speak to the, uh, the non-Christians in the room right now, if you're just exploring these things, and you might not realize that sin is destructive. You might be thinking, well, I don't see this in my own life. Here's the reality. 
is that sin is often unseen in our hearts and in our lives. Like the young athlete who is so healthy and ends up having a heart attack. We didn't realize this looming disaster that was in our life because of our unrepentant sin. Sin is problematic. Stupid sin. You guys with me? What's the problem? It's sin. And sin, it's like such an outdated concept. People don't talk about sin. Oh, don't, don't, don't take it there. That sounds too much like religion. So we got people trying to figure things out, politicians. We got, you know, debates about who's going to be the best next governor, all this. And then all this good stuff. I mean, common grace for society. I get it. But sin is the problem. At a national level, at a state level, at a city level, and at a personal level. Listen, there will be, I'm all for politics, but there will be no legislation that brings peace to this world. Why? It's because we don't have peace in here. As long as we have the turmoil and the destruction of sin at a personal level, there will always be turmoil and destruction of sin at a broad national level. It brings destruction. As a church, we are people who come together and recognize this. You know, we scatter, we go into our different fields, we pursue the good of all people, but as we come together on Sundays, we are people who look at each other and we say, I know what the real problem is. <laughs> they, don't at my, they don't get it at my job, and I do what I can, but, but when, when I'm here, I can say, I know what the real problem is. Listen, we've got to be honest with each other. We've got to stop trying to cover up and come into church and acting like we've got it more together than we do. We've got to stop not confessing our sins because we're afraid of the shame that's attached to it. Listen, one way that we can just simply apply this right now is to confess our sins to each other. To let that be a regular part of our conversations with each other to be able to say, I'm struggling with this area. I'm sinning. I'm falling short. Oh, it's such a gracious thing to do because sin that comes into the open is forgiven sin. We say, oh, that's, that's, uh, thank you for confessing. That's forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. The story of the Bible could be summed up in this way. Humans messed it up. Jesus came to clean up our mess. How many of you are glad that Jesus came to clean up our mess? Listen, sin is destructive, but we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who cleaned all of it up. Well, that leads us to the second part of the last chapter, and that is this. God's people will experience deliverance from the mess. The first part I'm, I'm entitling, just to remind you, God's people find themselves in a mess. The second part, God's people will experience deliverance from the mess. There was a toddler who is walking through the mall holding her mother's hand and she wiggles her hand out of the grip of her mother and she starts walking on her own. Finally, she's experiencing some independence that she had so longed uh, for and, and she's walking around the mall and she's looking at some stores and looking at the people passing by, uh, just for a minute, a very brief minute, because pretty soon, what happens? All of a sudden, she starts to get this feeling, a feeling of loss, a feeling of loneliness, a feeling of fear. And what does the toddler begin to do? She begins to cry. Because she realizes that she no longer has the presence of her mother. Well, thankfully, the mother was right behind her. She just didn't see her. 
And as soon as she begins to cry, the mother reassures her, turns her around, and restores the toddler with herself. The remnant are a people living in Babylon who at one time, they, they longed for freedom from God. They rebelled against God, and now they find themselves at rock bottom, no longer enjoying His presence. And they begin to weep. They feel that sense of loss. But God is about to restore them. Now, how do we know that Jeremiah ends with a little hint toward or a promise of the fact that God is going to restore them? Well, he's told us that earlier in the book already, so he's already made the promise. But at the end, there's just this little corner that's turned, and it's a corner turned toward restoration. Let me show it to you. First, we see in verse 24, that there is a remnant that is left. Meaning they are not completely wiped out like God promised. I will not bring you to a full end, He said. But there will be something left. And so as this book closes, we're told that there are 4,600 left in verse 30. Now scholars say that's most likely the number of men or, or heads of households. It's most likely 4,600 households, which would lead us to a, a number of somewhere between 15,000 and 18,000 Israelites living as the remnant in Babylon. Now that sounds like a big number to you, but that's actually a very small fraction of what their nation was, meaning they have truly experienced real painful suffering and loss. However, that is a strong number, isn't it? That, that's a number that says there is something else that's going to happen. God is not done with us. He has left a remnant. What, what we see here is that the future is not going to be with Egypt. The future is not going to be with anybody that's left in Israel. The future is going to be with these in Babylon, these people who have obeyed and surrendered themselves to Babylon as Babylon came in, they now find themselves in the belly of a lion, but it is not yet over. How now will this remnant of 15 to 18,000 people return to the land, rebuild the land, and eventually become the worldwide people that God promised all the way back with Abram? Well, we can, I can tell you how it will not happen. It will not happen by their own good deeds. There is not enough good that they can do to earn their way back to the land. It will not happen through their military might. They don't have any military might. Their weapons are gone. Their military is decimated. And the soldiers that are left are useless prisoners. It will not happen through their strategies. Let's kind of figure out how to get out of this thing. No, no, no. It ain't gonna, it's not going to go down like that. There is no Shawshank Redemption in real life with Israel. They're not going to break out of this. See, a lot of times when we hit rock bottom, we think it's, a, it's all on us to get ourselves out of it. We're going to climb our way out. We're going to lie our way out. Well, that just continues rock bottom, doesn't it? We're going to do whatever we got to do to get ourselves out of rock bottom. Here's what I often hear people say when they've hit rock bottom. They believe that their answer is in getting a new job. I just need a new job. My problem are the people I work with. My problem is the job that I have. Or I just need a new circle. I need new friends. I'm surrounding myself with too many toxic people and I need to drop them and, and get some new people in my life. 
Or I, I need a new city. I need a change of scenery. I got to get out of this neighborhood. I got to get away. Listen, none of that is going to get us out of rock bottom. Not really. You know, you can go from one city to another and you're still in rock bottom. You can change your circle all you want and what you, well, uh, 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 I hope you'll realize at some point is that you were the toxic one. <laughs> or at least that you contributed to the toxicity. You can keep your friend group small, just the people you trust, only to be backstabbed, only to backstab them. Now listen, it's, it's, it's not on us to get ourselves out of rock bottom. There, there's nothing that we can do to lift ourselves up from the place that we find ourselves when sin has wreaked havoc in our life. The only hope that we have of getting out of rock bottom is the sovereign grace of God. It's that God would do something in us, through us, and for us to lift us up and to restore us to Him. We see first that a remnant remains. Secondly, we see that a king is lifted up. Now, this is how Jeremiah closes. This is how he closes. He, he, he closes with a reference to a king named Jehoiachin. Everybody say Jehoiachin. Everybody say Jeconiah. All right, remember those two names. That's the same guy. One is a Hebrew version. One is a Greek version. Jehoiachin is referenced at the very end of the book. It's how Jeremiah closes. And, and Jehoiachin, well, I'll tell you what happens. is Jeho They fast forward a number of years. It's 37 years later. If you can kind of picture this as a movie, this is how it ends. And Jehoiachin is a, an old man now. Who is Jehoiachin? You might remember him from earlier. He was the one king in Israel who actually surrendered to Babylon. He only served as king for three months before Zedekiah. Because as soon as Babylon came, even though Jehoiachin had sinned against God, when Babylon came, Jehoiachin remembered the word of God and he surrendered to Babylon. At the very end, it's 37 years later, and we find Jehoiachin in a prison cell. He's been sitting in prison for all of these years. This would be what? Rock bottom for Jehoiachin. There's nothing he can do to get out of it. There's no way that he can uh, strategize his way out of this prison cell. What happens? What we see at the end is this. God's sovereign grace. After 37 years, there's a new king that comes into Babylon, and his name is Evil Muradok. It's a funny name, isn't it? Evil Muradok. And for whatever reason, in God's sovereign grace, evil, evil Muradok finds some favor with this Jehoiachin in a prison cell. He goes over and releases him. He brings him out of prison. Not only that, but it says that he gave him a seat above all the other seats of kings in Babylon. Which means he makes Jehoiachin a king of kings. He gives him a name above all other names. He takes off his prison clothes. He gives Jehoiachin a, a place at his table where he dines every day. He gives him a daily allowance of money until the day that Jehoiachin dies as an old man. What we see here at the very end of Jeremiah is a movement of God's sovereign grace. Leo, I want to ask you to come up here really quick. Get on the keys here. I want, to, I want to explain to you what's going on because some of you don't quite realize why this matters. And I get it. I heard somebody explain it this way. I want, I want, to, I want to give it to you. Um, let's play a little guess, guess what Leo's playing. Give us a tune, Leo. 
that we would know and just give us a half a measure. Stop. What's he playing? Ah, so you got a couple notes. Da 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 da. That was pretty good. It was nice. Let's give it, give us another one. Pause. Da 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 da. Right? Amazing grace. Give us something. Give us something else. Pause. What's this? Ah, you don't know that one, do you? This is why you don't understand what's going on here. It's because you don't know the song. What were you playing just there? Huh? What? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Yeah, it's a song that we don't know. Listen, here's my point. If there's a song being played and you're not quite familiar with the tune, that explains to me why you're not jumping out of your seat getting excited right now. If you were in Babylon as a remnant, you would be very familiar with this tune that's being played. And it wouldn't be obscure. You would know exactly where the writer is going as this book closes. Well, what's the tune? I'll give you a couple examples. The tune plays with a man named Joseph. Joseph is a person who's sold into slavery in Egypt. You know this story? He hits rock bottom, doesn't he? Hopeless. There's no way, there is no way out for Joseph. Like some good novelist couldn't even get him out of this pickle, right? But then there's just this amazing turn of events and Pharaoh comes along and pulls him out and gives him a seat above all other seats in Egypt. And what does that tell us? It tells us God is doing something. Something is about to change. Restoration is about to happen. The song plays again with a, a, a little baby named Moses. Well, by this time, Israel had been enslaved for hundreds of years and they're trying to kill all the babies and a baby named Moses is put into a, a river and that little baby ends up in the house of Pharaoh and he grows up in the house of Pharaoh and, 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 and is given this place of prominence in the empire. What is that song? That's, that's the song of redemption. It's saying something is happening there's one who goes into the belly of the beast and by God's sovereign grace, like nobody did anything to orchestrate it, by God's sovereign grace, he's raising up a king. What do we see here? The song, do, do you hear the song now? There's a king in the belly of the lion. He's got no hope. There is no hope for this people. But all of a sudden, that song begins to play. God uses leaders, not according to their positions, but according to His plan in this world. And this king, Evil Murdoch, comes into play, and God uses him to lift up this king. The song is beginning to play. Do you hear it? God is on the move. God is bringing redemption to a people who don't deserve it, who have been beat down because of sin in this world. And He's lifting up their head. Listen, you thought it was the end, but it's just the beginning. You thought that as a result of the sin that had broke you down, that you were going to be 100% decimated and destroyed. There is no hope after this. Yet, what we're discovering is that you were just simply in the refining fire of God. You thought this was rock bottom, but what you discover is that you have been in the workshop of, 
of your master and he's doing something in your life. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. He's right behind you. You just didn't see him. And he's about to restore you wonderfully to himself. Is anybody with me? But he's hinting at something even more. There's a louder song that's being played. I told you that Jehoiachin, his Greek name is Jeconiah. If you flip forward into Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles, only do it if you're really good at moving through the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, we see Jehoiachin again. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, we're reading the geneal- this genealogy, and it says, uh, uh, Josiah, who was, Josiah was the good king of Israel prior to his wicked sons taking over. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, there he is, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shet- Shetiel, and Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad. Wait for it! It's coming! And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Oh, you hear the song now? What we see is this king at the end of Jeremiah is lifted up, and he is an ancestor of a greater king who's going to be lifted up. Oh, this takes us to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, he too went into the belly of the beast He went into the belly of the lion, Babylon. He took it on Himself. It crushed Him. He died on the cross for our sin in our place. Buried Him in the ground. But God, the Father, raised Him from the dead. Raised Him from the belly of the beast. And gave Him a seat above all other seats. Gave Him a name above all other names. Gave Him the position of King of kings, Lord of lords, declaring Him to be the King. He always was and is and is to come. Now what's even more is this. This King comes to you while you are in the belly of the the, the lion, while you are in the pit of rock bottom. This king comes to you and by God's sovereign grace lifts you up, takes off your prison clothes, gives you a new name. He has died for you. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know this king? Listen, this is the king who is calling you out of slavery into a marvelous light Do you hear His call? Friends, if He's calling you, run to Him. Embrace Him. Trust Him as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your King. Oh, what a King He is to deliver us, to give us then a seat at His table where we come together and we dine with this King Does anybody know this king? Does anybody know that we need a better king than anything that this world can provide? Does anybody know that the the kings that this world have provided have led you to the place where you are in your pit of despair? And do you know that this king has come for you? That he has called you, died for you, and raised to new life? you. Listen, as people 
of this king. We not only are exiles in a foreign land, which we are, but we are co-heirs with Christ. We are raised to one day reign with Christ in His kingdom. We are given now not a passive role as just simply people who are sitting on a couch waiting, but we are given an active role in our wait. We are called as His people to be on mission, to be His hands and His feet, to be the light of the world, to declare to the broken world who are in the pit of despair all around us that there is hope. And the hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are soldiers called to go to war against Babylon. Oh, not flesh and blood that we fight against, but principalities and powers, rulers of this present world. Are you one of His people? Trust in Him. Find this hope this morning. Listen, Jeremiah is about judgment, yes. But Jeremiah is not just a book about judgment. Jeremiah is a book about hope. It's a book about redemption. It's a book about new hearts. It's a book about restoration. It's a book about prisoners who become kings. It's a, it's a book about rebels who become saints. It's a book about cold, stony hearts which are changed by God's grace. This is not just an ancient story. This is our story. This is not just a hope that people had thousands of years ago. This is a hope that we have. Hope in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Jeremiah. We thank you for the hope that we have in the King of Kings who has been raised from the dead, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. God, we ask that as we would uh, come around this table, that we would eat with one another in remembrance of Him that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen us in our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.